It's in Luke chapter 18. So as Jason likes to say, you can open your Bible or turn it on, whichever uh, you do. We're going to be looking at Luke 18, verses 9 through 14. It's basically a parable about the difference between God's justification and man's justification. It's a parable about being justified before men or being justified before God. Those are two very different things. And at its core, at its core, it's a parable about heaven and hell. It really is. You know, a, uh, a lot of us think that maybe people don't even believe in heaven and hell anymore, but Pew Research did a poll in 2014 and found that fully seven in 10 Americans believe there's a heaven. And six in 10 believe that there is such a place as hell. Uh, now, there's a great bit of diversity as to who goes to either of those places. Uh, a lot of difference of opinion there, but just the fact that Americans still believe that there's a heaven and a hell, the vast majority of Americans is revealing, I think. And this parable, I think, is a, is a great place to look at that. Father, thank you for your word. Uh, and we simply ask with the psalm writer that it would be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path and that, uh, that you would open our eyes, that we might behold wonderful things from your word in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, when you, uh, one of the most difficult tasks of preaching is coming up with what Dr. Haddon Robinson used to refer to as the big idea of the text. Uh, what, is, what is that one central idea that all the smaller uh, ancillary ideas are connected to? And sometimes it's, it can be tough coming up with that one single big idea. But Jesus in this parable gives us the idea. He gives us the big idea. It's the final verse that we'll be looking at, but I'm going to actually read it first. It's Luke chapter 18 and verse 14. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And if you forget everything else you heard this morning, go home with that. Remember that one. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. Some have referred to this as the, the parable of the religious hypocrite. You might say, well, why the parable of the religious hypocrite? Well, notice what Jesus says in verse 9. He says, <clears throat> uh, I'm sorry, what Luke says in verse 9. He says, he, that is Jesus, also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves, underline that, guys, who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. So this is, in a very real sense, a story of a religious hypocrite, a Pharisees, uh, a Pharisee or anyone else who is guilty of this most serious sin of all, the sin of trusting in ourselves. Um, I guess the, the, this guy's a Pharisee, okay? So in the ancient world, he's one of the religious leaders, maybe uh, today the equivalent of our, our bishops or our seminary professors, but he's a very influential guy. Um, and he honestly believes, he's sure, as a matter of fact, he's absolutely certain that because of his own intrinsic righteousness, because of what a good person he is, he's convinced, absolutely convinced, that he's right with God, that, that all's well with the world, that he doesn't need anything, and that he fully has God's approval. I might say, well, you know, I don't usually feel that way. Personally, I don't. Um, 
What is it that makes him feel that way? Well, we can get two things uh, right out of the text. The Pharisee believes he's right with God, first of all, number one, because of comparison. Comparison. Notice uh, verses 10 and 11. He says, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. See what he's doing? He's, he's, he's looking at the people around him and comparing himself with what he sees around him. And when he does, he feels pretty good about it. You know, the guys, there's always somebody lower on the moral food chain than us. Almost like no matter how bad you are or, or how much of a, a struggle you might have with any given sin in a certain area, if you look around enough, you can always find somebody who's worse than you. And that's what this guy's doing. Now, the problem with that, it doesn't really address the root of the problem, but it does provide some temporary relief. It really works. Um, for example, suppose, uh, you, you know, we all have kind of what we would call a besetting sin, that one area that we really struggle. Suppose for, for you it's anger. Anger is the one thing that you really struggle to, you know, to get a handle on. And, and maybe on this, you know, you lose it one day, you've really had a, a struggle with your anger, and you're really discouraged, and somebody says, well, you know what you need to do? You need to look to Jesus. So you look to Jesus, and you know what you look, when you see Jesus, you know what you see? You see his absolute patience. You see his absolute kindness. You see his absolute understanding. And you know what that does for you? It makes you hopeless. It makes you feel hopeless. But that's a good thing. That is a good thing. And hold on to that thought. We're going to come back to that in a minute. Or, instead of looking to Jesus, you can look at someone else around you. Uh, if you grew up where I grew up, back on the uh, East Coast in New Jersey, uh, you could have picked up any New York, New Jersey paper just a few weeks ago. Uh, maybe you pick up my, the paper that was kind of my hometown paper, the Asbury Park Press, and you could see right there on the front page, Alec Baldwin punches a man in the face over a dispute because of a parking space. And you read the article, Alec Baldwin actually got in a fight with a guy over a parking space and he punched him in the face right on a street in Manhattan because the guy took his parking space. Wow, I've never done that. <laughs> you know, as much as I struggle with my temper, I would never punch anybody in the face, especially over a parking space. And you know what, that provides some temporary relief. We feel better. We're not doing as bad as we thought. So, you know, but let's be encouraged a little bit here. But again, it doesn't address the root of the problem, does it? It provides some temporary relief, but does not address the real root of the problem. So the Pharisee makes, him feel, makes himself feel better by comparison. Secondly, by compensation. By compensation. Look what he says in verse 12. I fast twice a week, and I give tithes of all I get. What a guy, huh? See, the Mosaic law would have required him to fast once a year. That was the requirement. But see, if you're, if you're trying to justify yourself, if you're trying to promote yourself, spiritually speaking, and convince yourself that you're okay, then once a year is not nearly enough. 
This guy feels like, you know what, i got to fast at least twice a week. And not only fast twice a week, but I give 10%. I give a tithe of everything I get. You know, God, <laughs> I'm a big giver. I'm a big giver. They couldn't, they couldn't keep this place going without me. And by comparison and by compensation, this guy has really convinced himself that he's in a right relationship with God. He's what we might call a legend in his own mind, right? But it's working for him. It's working for him. He believes it. That's the tragedy. He's completely sold on this idea. But as much as he thinks he's right with God, guys, he's not. You know why he's not? Because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But whoever humbles himself, God will exalt. So he believes he's right with God because of compensation and comparison. Secondly, his self-righteous attitude shows up in the way that he prays. Notice verse 11 again. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. You see that? I purposely chose the uh, New American Standard Bible version here because I think it gets at what's actually going on here. He's not praying. Praying is a conversation with God, right? But I think the NASB really nails it here when it says, the Pharisee stood and was praying this to God? No, to himself. He's praying to himself. He's talking to himself. In, in literature, well, not, I guess not, not so much liter, literature, in, in the world of plays in, on Broadway, they refer to this as a soliloquy. A soliloquy is defined as having a conversation with yourself. And that's what this guy's doing. He's not praying. He's having, he's having a conversation with himself about himself. <laughs> Wouldn't you agree that all true prayer, all true prayer is born out of a sense of need? But this guy, this guy doesn't feel any sense of need. He doesn't need anything. He's fine. He's doing very well. Thank you very much. And so there is no real prayer here. There's a conversation with himself and about himself. He thinks he's fine, but guys, there is both truth and tragedy in what's going on with this guy. The truth is he's a sinner just like the rest of us. The tragedy is he has no idea that, that's, that that is the case. The tragedy is he feels innocent. But he's guilty of the greatest of all sins, the sin of trusting in ourselves, also known as the sin of pride. Did you know that pride is not only the worst sin, pride is also the first sin? Anybody know who committed the first sin? Now be careful. Be careful. Who committed the first sin? Satan, yeah. I don't know who said it, but yeah, Satan. Exactly. You can read about it in Ezekiel chapter 28. The, the pinnacle of God's creation when it came to angelic beings, the, the cherub of cherubs. And he was, he was rich in wisdom, rich in beauty, rich in power, 
because of what God had given him. But then the scripture tells us, but he became puffed up. He became proudful. He said things like, I will be as the most high. And led a rebellion against God. And we all know how that ended. He was banished from God's presence. And the book of Revelation tells us that even though he is free for a time, that he will be eventually cast into a place that the Bible calls the lake of fire. But Satan was the first sin and pride is the worst sin. And you know why? You know why Satan fell? Because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But whoever humbles himself will be exalted. You know, C.S. Lewis uh, is probably one of the most quotable Christian writers of all time. And he had a lot to say about pride and what pride does to us. Listen to what Lewis wrote. He said, the essential vice, the utmost evil is pride. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. The devil, the devil. Pride leads to every other vice, and the more we have it in ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. Isn't that interesting? Then he goes on to say this. That is why a cold, self-righteous prig who goes regularly to church may be closer to hell than a prostitute. Wow. Why, why would a cold, self-righteous person who goes to church every Sunday be closer to hell than a prostitute? Well, I think on the face of it, it's obvious. The, the cold, self-righteous person may go, may go to church every Sunday out of habit, but he doesn't come out of a sense of need. He's cold. He's self-righteous. He believes that he's okay within himself. He believes he possesses righteousness and goodness intrinsically and doesn't need any outside help. The prostitute, on the other hand, be it male or female, no doubt feels guilt at times, shame at times. And guys... That's the first step toward the cure, knowing that we're not intrinsically righteous, knowing that we're, in our, that we're not in a right relationship with God in and of ourselves. That's the first step toward the cure. And that's why what Lewis says is absolutely right. A cold, self-righteous prig who goes to the church every Sunday would be closer to, to hell than a prostitute because he thinks he's going to make it to heaven on his own, and guys, no one does. Absolutely no one does. So the Pharisee's arrogance shows up in the way that he prays. Thirdly, the tax collector's humility shows up in the way that he prays. Notice verse 13. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. See, he feels guilty, he feels dirty. He doesn't believe that God would ever want anything to do with him. And to him, that feels hopeless. But you know what? That's a good place to be in. Because the, acknowledging the fact that we're sick is the first step toward the cure. 
And we see it in his prayer. We see the humility. We see the brokenness. And he doesn't think God would want anything to do with him. But guys, it's been true for 2,000 years, and it is still true. Jesus Christ came to save what? Sinners. Yeah. Not nice people. Not people who think they're fine. Not people who don't need Jesus or need God or need anything outside of themselves. He didn't come for those people. Jesus Christ came to save sinners. People who are not right with God. People who are sinners and know they are not right with God. Know they're sinners. The first step to the cure is admitting that you're sick. Remember I said a few minutes ago that if your problem is anger and you turn to Jesus, you see his perfect patience, his perfect kindness, and his perfect understanding, and it will lead to despair. And I said, that's a good thing. It is a good thing. It is a good thing. Remember, if, if you went back to Luke, we're in Luke 18. If you went back to Luke chapter 5, you would see that Jesus is beginning his ministry in Galilee, and he's walking around uh, the, the various towns around the uh, the Sea of Capernaum, the Sea of Galilee, Lake Gennesaret, whatever you want to call it. And he walks up to the shore, and there's Peter, James, John, all the fishermen are there. And Jesus goes up and he says to Peter, he says, um, put your boat out a little bit from the shore and, uh, and let down your nets for a catch. You guys know the story. Remember Peter said, Lord, we've been fishing all night and we've caught absolutely nothing. But on your word... I'll put down the nets. So he puts down the nets, and the nets are so full that they begin to tear. And Peter has to call James and John, his business partners, to bring out another boat, and they fill up two boats, and the two boats are almost sinking. That There's, there's so many fish, the two boats are almost sinking. Do you remember Peter's response? Wow, Lord, what an amazing miracle. You think you could do this like once a week? We'll cut you in for 50%. This is amazing. no. No. He says, and I, can, and I just sort of can picture Peter's face with an absolute look of brokenness and saying, Lord, depart from me. I'm a sinful man. See, Peter's just got a glimpse of who Jesus really is. He suddenly realizes, I'm not just looking at a great teacher or great rabbi. I'm looking at God in human flesh. And when he sees Jesus as he is, Peter, maybe for the first time, really sees himself as he is. A sinner through and through who is hopeless to save himself. But that's a good thing. That's a good thing. Remember sometime later the. The disciples are out on the boat with Jesus in the middle of the lake and a storm whips up. And it gets so bad that the waves are breaking over the side and the boat's taking on water and the disciples begin to panic. And they look back at Jesus and remember, what's Jesus doing? He's asleep <laughs> in the back of the boat. He's sound asleep. So they wake him up. They shake him. Lord, don't you care that we're about to perish? And the gospel writers say that at that point, the disciples were, quote, afraid. Afraid. So Jesus wakes up, he wakes up, and he stands, and after a mild rebuke, 
He stands up and he says, peace, be still. And just like that, the wind drops out and the sea becomes as flat as the floor in this room. And the Bible says at that point, the disciples were exceedingly afraid. When, they're, when they think they're sinking, they're afraid. When Jesus calms everything with just the spoken word, they're exceedingly afraid. You know what's scarier than having all of creation raging outside your boat? Having the God of creation in your boat. That's scarier. And when the disciples see Jesus for who he really is, they're blown away. They're fearful. Who is this man that even the winds and the waves obey him? And they see themselves as they really are. Sinners who need a savior. So listen, guys, whether it's, whether it's the tax collector saying, beating his chest and just saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, or whether it's Peter saying, Lord, depart from me, I'm a sinful man, or whether it's the disciples in pure fear saying, who is this man that even the wind and the waves obey him? All of those points of hopelessness in regard to themselves are a good thing. You know why they're a good thing? Because at that moment, when you feel your most hopeless, hope, when you feel you're at your most hopeless point, and you know that you can never save yourself, you know that only Jesus Christ can save you. At that moment, in the quietness of your heart, you will hear Jesus Christ say, You are hopeless, but apart from me, you can do nothing, and you realize that now. But when I died on the cross for your sins, I did everything that God requires for you to go to heaven when you die. When I died on the cross for your sin, I paid for every sin that you would ever commit from the cradle to the grave. And by simply putting your trust in me, not trusting in yourself at all, but by simply transferring all that trust to me as your Savior at that moment, I will give you eternal life and you will never, ever perish. And you have the word, the promise of the perfect sin of, sinless son of God that that's true. And you know what, guys? Not because I'm the one who gets to say it this morning, but that's the best news you and I have ever heard. Ever. I heard it first. I understood it first on March the 1st, 1980. And my life has never been the same. It has never been the same. Oh, man, I have had my ups and downs. Absolutely. Not proud of the downs. But I'll tell you something, my life has never been the same. And if Jesus never did another thing for me in my life, I would still want to know him and serve him as best I could because of what he did on March 1st, 1980. I will never get over the amazing grace of Jesus, and I can't talk about it without getting goosebumps on my arms. I hope you never get over it either. I really do. Here's the, you know, the Gospels are full of irony. They really are full of irony, and, and this parable is no exception. Notice verse 14. Jesus says, I tell you, this man, speaking of the tax collector, 
went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The Pharisee and the tax collector did what what you guys are going to do in a minute. They went home. But here's the irony. The Pharisee shows up at the temple feeling innocent, but goes home guilty. The tax collector shows up at the temple feeling guilty, but goes home innocent. The the exact word Jesus uses is justified. He's been justified freely by the grace of God in Christ. Can I give you just a little warning? If you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you don't know for sure you have eternal life as a simple free gift, not because you're a good person or ever have been or ever will be or that you ever earned it or deserved it because you never have and you never will, but if you have never received Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, beware of going home feeling innocent. Beware of it. Uh, many years ago, and I close with this, probably, um, oh gosh, probably 20 or 25 years ago, I was watching a news telecast, and they had had a little uh, blurb of, the, of a Billy Graham crusade. And, of course, it, it, it was the end where Billy's giving the invitation and saying, you know, if you'll simply trust Christ and what he's done for you, he'll give you eternal life as a free gift. Christ died for you. And that was the end of the clip. And a minute later, the anchor person is interviewing Ted Turner. How many know who Ted Turner is? Am I getting Okay, most of you guys, good. And the first thing the anchor, I'll never forget it, the first thing the anchor said was, well, that was a Billy Graham, that was Billy Graham, Ted. He goes, uh, what do you think of that, that, that Jesus died for our sins? And I'll never forget what he said. Ted Turner said, I don't want anybody to die for me. I'm not interested in Jesus. I've had a few women and I've had a few drinks, and if that's going to send me to hell, so be it. And you know, I I can remember thinking, how tragic. How tragic. And And the tragedy isn't his sins, which he named. I mean, who hasn't sinned? We all have. The tragedy is that he says, I don't want anybody to die for me. In other words, translation, I'm going to make, either I make it to heaven on my own or I don't make it at all. And guys, listen, he won't make it unless he, unless, unless he changes his thinking and turns in simple faith to Jesus Christ. And you know why he won't make it? Because everyone, who exalts himself will be humbled. But everyone, and here's the good news, everyone who humbles himself will be eternally exalted by Jesus Christ. Father, your amazing grace never ceases to amaze. And I pray for them, maybe one person here this morning who's never trusted your son as their savior. And Lord, I pray in a very real sense that you would give them no rest until their heart finds their rest 
eternal rest in the perfect, sinless Son of God who loved, who loved us and gave himself for us. And it's in his name that I pray. Amen.